0: We've gotten to the point where now we are being so identified by work, and that's how we define who we are. And, and so there's all this work spillover into home, but because we haven't valued the home and care and caregiving as much, we don't have that same spillover effect from home to work. And I think that's something we really need to start watching is how do we create those stronger boundaries. This is Women Killing It. Each week, women who are killing it in their careers share their stories and advice for making it in today's working world. Your host is Sally Hubbard.
1: Today's guest is Bridget Schulte. Bridget is the director of the Better Life Lab and the Good Life Initiative at the New America Foundation. She was a longtime staff writer for the Washington Post, and she was part of a team that won the Pulitzer Prize. She had a New York Times bestselling book that's called Overwhelmed, how to Work, Love, and Play When No One Has the Time. Congratulations, Bridget, you are killing it!
0: <laughs> uh, you know, that's great to hear, because there's certainly some mornings I don't feel that way, but that's <laughs> it's a great introduction. Thank you.
1: Could you start off by talking about what you do at the Better Life Lab and the Good Life Initiative?
0: Yeah, sure. I'd love to. In a way, it's it's the coolest thing. Uh, I had the opportunity when I was working on my book to try to understand why life felt so crazy and overwhelming. And I really looked at sort of the three great arenas of life at work and what was sort of not working at work and love and what was not working in terms of home and gender roles and uh, what was going on with men and women or and then play or leisure time. Well, like, Where is that gone? What's What's happening with that? And in the best sense, my job now is to basically work on the problems that I uncovered in the book, which is really exciting. And that's really where we came up with the idea of the Better Life Lab, is that we're you know it's a really new era. We're still trying to figure it out, but it's really about how do you create the opportunity for living your best life for for all people. And so you know we really focus on three main areas, and that's we look at redesigning work because so much of the overwhelm really starts at work. Um, you know how do you make it safe and fair and effective and sustainable? Um, So we look at the future of work and work redesign, and then we look at gender equality and really thinking about that really broadly so that we're not just talking about in the traditional sense, you know, the advancement of women, which is critical in the public sphere, but also the evolution and the role of men in the private sphere at home. And how do we talk about care and unpaid care work and really elevate the importance of that? And so the final area that we work at, we look at social policy. And, you know, most of the social policy, if we have any at all in the United States, was written back in the 1930s when families looked very different. So how do we rewire basically family policy or social policy to really support really diverse 21st century families? So that's really exciting. We get to work on those three areas and there's a lot of work to do.
1: I got to say, I'm really glad you're working on that because <laughs> we talk about these problems a lot on this podcast, yeah. and I, I've been trying to gather uh, women's strategies on how they deal with everything um, by talking to such successful women. So I'm very excited that this is your <laughs> focus because you're right, there's a lot of work to do. I know you guys recently came out with and you co-authored the Better Work Toolkit.
0: Yeah. Could you
1: tell us what the toolkit's about?
0: So this was a really fun and exciting project. We uh, had a partnership with the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and Ideas42, and they're a nonprofit that uses behavioral science to try to understand really sticky real-world problems and try to understand our own human psychology to come up with better designs. And so we really looked at uh, work, work work-life conflict and overwork through the lens of behavioral science, trying to understand, like, if we could understand What drives some of that overwork? Could we design solutions to to try to solve it. And so what's so interesting about behavioral science is that, you know, we tend to think that if we're going to make change, either individual change or change at work or on your team or even at home, we think that it's like this matter of willpower, that, you know, that there's something wrong with us. And so we have to just really fight our own nature or we got to just push through. And what's so interesting is that behavioral science really shows that it's not so, you know, when you really want to make change, it's not so much about willpower or kind of of individual choice, but really creating an environment, creating a system that makes making the right choice easy. And so I've learned a lot about human behavior, which is so fascinating. Which is basically, humans have a really hard time making the right choices. You know, <laughs> think think about it. It's like we all know you need to sleep well, you need to eat right, and yet so many of us we don't do that, and we stay up late, and we watch, we binge watch TV, and we eat too much chocolate. And I'm thinking about myself over the weekend, right? <laughs> you know, um, we we are terrible at predicting the future. We are notorious. We we tend to overestimate what we're able. Able to do and underestimate how long it will take, which is then, you know, and then we procrastinate because we don't really want to do it. And then we get into these crunches where, you know, then we don't have enough time to really do the right job. And so then work spills into the evening or into the weekend. So it was, it was a fascinating look at uh, you know, how can we really use uh, our understanding of human psychology to design different environments? And so that's what we in this project, we we looked at three different work sites and in one sense, these were the perfect workplaces. There was a lot of policy that promoted flexibility, that gave people a lot of autonomy, uh, that really valued work-life balance and would say things like, we want you to refresh yourself and take vacation and nobody was doing it and everybody was working late and people were on email on the weekend, and people were really burning out. So it was really an opportunity to understand, like, in sort of, quote, unquote, the best possible situation, you know, when you've kind of, you're saying all the right things, you've got all the right policies, and you've still got people with intense work-life conflict. What is going on, and how can you design... Better systems to help people make better choices and help teams make better choices, so that you can actually get the work right.
1: Yeah, I mean, the systems thing is something I've been thinking about a lot, and just in trying to maybe it's part of my own personal midlife crisis, trying to revamp and fix things. And it really is about setting up systems. Like for instance, I was wasting too much time looking at Facebook in the evenings. Right.
0: I finally uh, just you deleted and everybody it from else. <laughs>
1: I finally just deleted it from my phone. Like, now. I created a system where it's hard for me now to access my Facebook, right? <laughs> well, that's, that's exactly
0: know. right. That's exactly, that's exactly what we found in the Better Work Toolkit and, and, and the work that we're doing is how do you create those systems that make it easier for you to make the choices that you really do want to make? I mean, obviously, we all would like to be healthy. We all would like to have work-life balance. So how can you create the system that makes that more, uh, an easier choice and more likely to happen?
1: What is kind of the driving force to get the employers to want to do that?
0: Right. Well, the way that we we wrote it to be very practical. So it's something that you can look at individually and uh, come up with systems that will help yourself in individually that teams can look at to try to be more effective and come up with systems that will help the team work more effectively. And my own team is sort of like, OK, let's adopt some of these email strategies. But it's also it's also designed for organizations because that's really key, you know, to really make that work-life balance, work-life conflict. I think uh, to to really solve that, uh, one of the stories that I that I wrote was like, look, I'm a fan of life hacks, I love them, but if you're really going to look at at restructuring work to the point where more people have work life balance, it's bigger than just you, it's bigger than willpower, it's bigger than life hacks, it really is about creating better systems at work, and so one of the things that we tried to do here is, uh, you know, we included like seven things that you need to know about work life balance. Uh, really, uh, everything is very evidence based. uh, There's end notes. There's uh, links to great studies. And it's really designed to give employees the tools that they need to kind of rethink their own work, that teams can use to rethink their own work, but that also you can take to your boss or to your CEO and say, look, this is why we need to make change. That work-life balance isn't a perk. It isn't a nice-to-have. It's actually going to make us all work better.
1: And what I like about um, New America's approach is actually it is a benefit to not making it a gender issue, right? I mean, even though I think these work-life balance conflicts hit women harder and and cause a greater toll on women's career uh, trajectories than they do on men's, the more that we can get kind of adoption by both genders of wanting to have this type of a better quality of life, I think, you know, the more it's going to benefit women and, and allow them to be more successful.
0: Yeah, I actually call this my stealth feminist agenda, if you will. You know, because it's really true, everything that you said, that we value this overwork culture in the United States. And that has really, it's hurt everybody, but it's really been part of what's kept women back. If you look at studies of, you know, hours worked, there's a big gender gap because men, because they're not expected to be the default parent or the primary caregiver or, you know, the, the Martha Stewart keeping the house all clean. They're able to devote more time to work, and they're able to overwork more than women are. And there's some really interesting economic research that shows that's actually a big part of the pay gap is that women are simply not able to put in the same kind of hours. And so one of the things that I've been really interested in looking at is like, well, okay, if you put in all of those hours, we we assume that you're the better worker. We reward you more financially. We promote you more. But are you really doing better work? And I think that it's that's one of the things that we're looking at in the better uh, Better Work Toolkit. There's really no evidence out there that just because you work longer hours, you're actually doing more or better work. Uh, and so that's one of the things that I really want to try to continue exploring is like, what is good work? What does it take to really do it? And how do you make it, how do you open opportunities for, for both men and women to re- really be able to show that they can do it? Uh, you know, and then, you know, this is a huge part of unconscious bias, you know, create uh, gender neutral systems so that the, the work and the performance really shines. I
1: had a guest on the on this show who was a realtor, and she was saying that she thought one key to getting equality in the workplace was to go to more of an eat what you kill model, where <laughs> your success is. And that's how I think one reason maybe why there's a lot of women who are realtors also is that it's your success is measured by your actual results. And a lot of employers have a real hard time measuring actual results. And so the default is looking at hours. And it's really that's yeah.
0: very true. But the other thing you got to think about too is that sometimes those systems you have to be really careful when you design those performance systems. And I'm I'm all for that moving away from rewarding FaceTime time just simply because you're there, but you have to be really thoughtful in how you Develop performance metrics, and the and one example I'll give you, Iris Bonet wrote a fantastic book, and this is where I was reading about it. Um, you know, it's all about designing gender neutral systems to really open up opportunity for you know in a fair way to men and women. And there was one uh, a couple stock brokerage firms where the women were always getting lower bonuses, and they were. Uh, you know, the general feeling was, well, they're just not as good, they're not as smart, they're not as hard-charging, they're not as aggressive. So basically, you know, through their performance metric, they thought the women were getting what they deserved. And it took a class-action lawsuit and really looking at the data and analyzing it to realize that kind of through unconscious bias, the women were getting the crummy accounts to begin with. <laughs> and so they had to really redesign how they how they uh, allocated the the work to begin with before they were really able to fairly measure people's performance. So I guess that would be my my main caution is absolutely move toward a performance uh, eat what you kill system, but be really very mindful that uh, the metrics that you set up might have some bias built in unless you really examine them carefully.
1: And have some women involved in making the metrics as well. <laughs> yes. Yeah.
0: It goes without saying. I mean, you know, the other instances, like think about the same thing happened with uh, the great orchestras in the world. For the longest time, they were all male. And the feeling again was, well, women are just not as talented. They're not as good. They're not as dedicated. They don't want to work as hard. And, you know, I'm the music director. I want the best musicians and men are just the best musicians. And then they created a new, they a kind of a new system. And that was blind editions where they would put up a curtain. And so you couldn't tell the gender of the person playing. And then they also had to do one other thing, and that was put down carpet so that you couldn't hear the click and clack of high heels coming across the stage. But then once they did those two kind of gender neutral designs, within a few short years, like about 30% of the orchestras are uh, of the uh, major orchestras in the world are made up of women. Uh, You know, so it's not that they didn't have the talent or the drive. They just weren't given a fair shot from the beginning simply because of the way our brains are wired. And our brains are wired to think, Uh, you know, to make very snap judgments. And right now, because of millennia of conditioning, we automatically associate men career, women family. And everybody does that. We are all biased. And so we have to recognize that, stop stigmatizing it, sort of embrace it and recognize, well, then we all need better systems to help us make the the best and the right decision without all of that bias getting in the way and uh, making all the noise.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's so much to this. On the um, idea of setting the metrics also, you know, I know personally as a working mom, the way that I've worked since I became a mother is completely different than before I was a mother. I would come in to work. Maybe I would check my email, read some articles, get down to work. Now I come in, I'm just like a cold, (laughs) like well-oiled machine. Like I am such a machine. You know, and I remember I had a job when I was working. I've talked about this a bit. I worked part time for a while and I just didn't work Fridays. Right. Mm
0: -hmm. But
1: I got paid 20% less. And I know that I did more work than half of my full time colleagues. Yeah. You know, I was, I came in, I was a complete machine, there was no chit chat. Um, I never said, I want to take less workload because that felt you still feel like you're kind of a second class citizen and you don't want to say, oh, I really don't want to take on that case because I I have too much on my plate already. Mm, You just never do that. And then next thing you know, you're working. I mean, I was working insanely um, efficiently Taking on a huge amount of work and I mean, or, you know, equal to my full time colleagues, but getting paid 20 percent less. (laughs) Yeah,
0: yeah. You know, and you make an excellent point here, Um, you know, again, going back to like, what is the right workload? How do you measure it and how do you value it? You're talking about law. What, law is one of the most notoriously inefficient systems out there where basically the longer you work, <laughs> the more you get paid. You know, that's uh, the, the system is built for you to just put in long, long, long hours, and then they're going to bill clients more and more and more. You know, one perfect example of that, there was a woman who started her own law firm because every time she had a child, she became more and more efficient, just like you said. And there are studies that show that working mothers are actually among the most productive (laughs) workers out there, just because you have to be, you you know, you have to be incredibly focused to be able to get your work done. But people don't seem to notice that, you know, again, because of unconscious bias, you're not seen as, as committed, which is nuts, you know. Uh, And just because you can't see somebody at the, you know, sitting there at their desk does not mean that they aren't you know, being in wildly, crazily productive, and I would include myself in that category over the years. But what was, what was really interesting is this woman saw that with every child, she became more and more effective as a lawyer. But at her firm, the guy down the hall who was taking twice as long on writing his briefs, who didn't win his case, but was, you know, working two and three times the hours, he was the one that got rewarded because he was able to build more build more time and then make more money for the firm and she said she said, "You know this is the definition of insanity. I am out of here so I think that's that's part of what we're working on here at new America and that's part of the better better work toolkit is how do we kind of disrupt those systems that we've gotten into that we sort of were doing things because we've always done them that way and that is one thing that we found like through through behavioral science is that we know it's called status quo bias. We humans are terrible at making change because well we've always done it this way so this is the way we should do it. And it's really time to disrupt a lot of those assumptions because they're definitely hurting women and they're really hurting all of us. It's putting all of us on this on this path of sort of like overwhelm and burnout.
1: And so the other half of, you know, refining the workplace is um or reforming the workplace is reforming the home, right? I mean, part yeah. of the reason why women are so overwhelmed is because they're taking on more than their fair share of the, um, you know, child raising or household responsibilities, emotional labor. Um, mm-hmm. I went, we went through a whole list of this when I had Sally Kraczek on the show. Um, all the different types of labor that are kind of unpaid, unseen, um, unrewarded, but do add to our plate and to that feeling of overwhelm. When you wrote your book overwhelmed. Did you figure (laughs) things out? Have you been less overwhelmed (laughs) since writing the book?
0: I have to say, yes, you know, I was I, I certainly not a guru. And I certainly there, I have stupid days, and I still do stupid things, and I still get overloaded. But I think the difference is, I would say, sometimes I get overloaded, but not overwhelmed, because I really understand it now. I see it more clearly. And then I think the other thing that's that's changed is that I did so much work looking for where systems do work, that I've seen how it can be possible. And that's given me hope. But I would say when people say what's the biggest thing that's changed, honestly, you know, I've changed my approach at work, which has been really much more effective. I work in shorter pulses when I can. Uh, I take more regular breaks. Uh, you know, I I try not to power through things. Although I still find myself, you know, old habits are hard to break. So I'm just I'm I'm here right now to admit I'm a work in progress, and i you know, but that's exciting. Every day I have an opportunity to do better. But the biggest change, honestly, is is really what happened at home. My husband and I had, had, when we got married, we decided that we were going to be these equal partners. And we did pretty, pretty well before we had kids. And then once our son came home from the hospital, I swear, it was, like, it was like Ozzie and Harriet started playing in both of our heads. We didn't even realize it. And then I had the long maternity leave. And even though at the time he was working for the Baltimore Sun and they had a paternity leave program, no men took it. It was seen as the kiss of death. And so he didn't take any kind of leave at all and I was really angry with him but he just didn't feel like that was that was really a possibility for him. So then I got to know the baby, I became the default parent sort of we both sort of assumed that I had this maternal instinct and I just knew what was going on. And it was really wasn't until I had the opportunity to report the book that I discovered, you know, scientifically there is no such thing as the maternal instinct. You know, that what women have always had is time. They've had time to figure out what kids need or what this cry or this fuss means. And that men, when you give them time, they develop their own confidence and competence. They'll do things in their own way, but that one of the things that hasn't happened is that they haven't had the time. And then we women, they call it maternal gatekeeping, we haven't given them the time. Or if they take it, then we're like, you idiot, why are you doing it that way? And then you kind of shut it down. And I didn't realize I was doing that too. You know, I was so angry, but then I was also shutting him out at the same time. And so it got so bad. There's one scene I write about in the book that was a Thanksgiving not that long ago. And I was doing everything. I'd shopped for, you know, three different times. I'd tried to find the perfect centerpiece because, you know, Martha Stewart was dancing around in my brain. And, uh, you know, I was working like a maniac because I was trying to be this ideal worker, but then I was also trying to be this crazy ideal mother and, you know, overdoing with my kids. And I was just... It was nuts. It was like 2 in the afternoon, and I've just got like – I've got 18 people coming over. I've got all these like vegetable peels all over the place. It's nuts. And my husband comes over, and he opens the fridge, and he takes out a six-pack of beer, and he walks out the door. I'm like, what are you doing? You know, how did we get to this point where this is like laughable? You know, this is not only bad. This is like Lucille Ball crazy, you know, that I am I am now doing absolutely everything, and you are doing nothing. I felt like, you know – it's married to the Lion King, you know, and I, I was so angry. And so we really, that was a real turning point for us. And, and so I did sort of, the only thing I know how to do as a reporter and a journalist is that we would go on long walks and I took a notebook with me and I interviewed him. And we just had these long talks about like, well, how did this happen? How, and we really tried to understand how did we get here? And more importantly, we got really clear and well, what do we want what do we want a relationship to look like? What do we want our home life to look like? How do we really want to support each other at work? Because I felt like I used to say he has a career and I try not to get fired, you know, because I was just trying to juggle too much. And that we started really small, just trying to kind of re reorient this kind of like battleship that had gone, you know, listing off to the side. And I would say it's a work in progress, but it is so much better. Um, we really started dividing things fairly. And I didn't rescue him like when he would do something badly. I used to always do it for him thinking, well, I just do it better. And when I stopped doing that, maybe it didn't get done to my standards, but it got done. And I realized that all of a sudden I had more space in my head because I wasn't trying to keep track of everything. We we really started to take turns taking the kids to their doctor and dentist and orthodontist appointments. And as silly as that sounds, before I was always doing it. Mm-hmm. And he he not only does it, but he makes the appointment. I mean, why do we think guys can't make doctor's appointments? You know? Yeah. Why do we think guys can't make summer camp plans? You know? Uh, and there's so much of that. Uh, it's real. Uh, you know, it's logistics planning. It's mental energy. And, and once we started changing that, I had I had so much more space in my head. I had more time in my day. And it actually made my relationships with everybody in my family better.
1: Yeah. I mean, we've talked a lot about these issues on the show. Actually, I had Jancy Dunn on the show a couple of weeks ago. Have you heard about her new book, which is what? called How Not to Hate Your Husband After Kids? <laughs> that
0: sounds perfect.
1: Um, and she talked a lot about that maternal gatekeeping also. You know, it's the headspace, even more than the actual having to do the tasks. It's the headspace. And when you have so many tracks running in your mind, it can be so so overwhelming. There's no reason for it to be the way it is. And I totally agree about the maternity leave. That's something I've talked about as well. It's like, you know, we set up the woman to become the expert because she has a time off for the baby.
0: Yeah. So that's why, you know, here at the Better Life Lab, one of our key policy objectives is to make sure that we have paid family leave for everybody You know, not just for the folks at the high tech companies who get maybe a year off that they never take, but really for everybody, low wage workers, um, you know, and those tech workers. And how do you make it uh, gender neutral? You know, so there's no doubt that, you know, women, obviously, I mean, I had two babies, you need physical recovery time. But when you're talking about bonding leave, men and women should have equal bonding leave. And you should be able to have the, the flexibility to take it in whatever way works for your families, either together, you know, subsequently, intermittently, uh, but really understanding that, that men are also just as wired for nurture and care and caregiving. And that when we share that work at home, we're going to be much fairer about how we share labor and opportunity at work as well.
1: My whole mission with this podcast and my whole kind of purpose in life is to remove mm-hmm. obstacles to women's career success, you know, because I think without economic equality, we don't have equality, right? Um, plus, it's just, true. you know, when you don't get to fulfill your potential because you're being bogged down by all the tracks in your mind of mundane housework, that's also creates a very unhappy situation.
0: Um. (laughs) It's so true. Well, you know what you described, because I didn't realize that is how I that's how I lived for so many years when the kids were when when the kids were little. And I really look at writing my book as almost almost getting a gift (laughs) to have the opportunity to really understand what's going on. And what you described, there's actually a term for it. It's called contaminated time. And I love that because it just is so it just described exactly how I felt. I just felt polluted all the time. It's like that c n n ticker tape going through your mind of all the stuff you got to do and all the stuff you got to keep track of and all the stuff you're worried about and yeah you know and and so you can be in a moment that you know, from the surface could look like you should be having a good time or leisure or relaxing. But when you've got all that stuff going on in your mind, you're sort of everywhere and nowhere at once. It's really polluted. It's contaminated. You're not really fully present. And I think that's that's basically the reality for a lot of women. It's robbing us of our ability to really live fully.
1: Yeah, I've been obsessed with that. I've decided that I don't want to feel that way anymore. I don't want to go around feeling overwhelmed all the time, feeling, yes. feeling constantly like there's so much to do and not enough time to do it. I mean, it just it just creates this persistent stress, which I think is also very bad for my personal health. I saw in the toolkit that you said that today's stressful workplace is the fifth leading cause of death in America. And, you know, once you get to like the middle age, you know, maybe it's my midlife crisis where I'm thinking, you know, actually being stressed out all the time about how I don't have enough time to do things is going to take a drastic toll on my health.
0: It's really true, that blew my mind that you know, I was studying when I was working on the toolkit and this uh, and this sort of the science of work life balance project. I was reading a lot about health and workplace culture, and there are these amazing researchers, Jeff Pfeffer at Stanford and Joel Goh at Harvard and others, and they've really they've they've looked at more than two hundred studies of like workplace culture and health and health outcomes. And that is the craziest thing that in in this meta-analysis of more than 200 studies, they found that long work hours, for instance, actually increased the chances of mortality by 20%. Which is crazy, you know, yeah. so here we are, we're valuing the long hours, we're, we're rewarding people for it, and we're actually like hastening people on their trip to, to the grave. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that uh, the health care costs that are associated with the stress and stress-related, uh, you know, to just the work environment, long hours, unpredictable schedules, um, you know, work creep that goes into the evening and the weekends, uh, you know, unpredictable, um, you know, oh, my God, I've got this project that just has hit my desk right as I'm trying to leave, you know, all of that feeling out of control, uh, that actually it's, it's creating as much sort of health costs, if, if you will, as diabetes. I mean, this is a public health crisis, and it really deserves our attention.
1: Yeah, a health crisis, and then, of course, you talked about the work bleeding into the evenings, and then it creates all this conflict at home, and so you know that's that creates more stress
0: <laughs> well and what's sad is that you know because we are such a work focused culture i mean part of it is the american character you know we there's this pure you know the the protestant work ethic and the harder you work the better you are you know there is a, a, a strong strain in a in the american character of valuing hard work and i'm all for that you know absolutely but we've gotten to the point where now we are being so identified by work, and that's how we define who we are. And, and so there's all this work spillover into home, but because we haven't valued the home and care and caregiving as much. We don't have that same spillover effect from home to work, and I think that's something we really need to start watching: is how do we create those stronger boundaries? I mean, this is one of the things that we found in the study: is that you know, work has changed to try to adapt to a different work workforce. Right now, we don't have the American wife at home, and so now you've got, um, you know, the majority of children in this country are being raised in families where all parents work, either dual income or single, you know, single parents. And so, you know, so the workplace, they adopted flexibility, thinking, well, you know, that'll be great for people. And it's true. That is that is absolutely flexibility with predictability is is exactly what people need. And yet we haven't been very artful in the way that we've implemented it. And so flexibility has become, as you know, with technology, not just work anywhere, anytime, but work everywhere all the time. And it was easier to have boundaries between work and home when work was someplace you went from nine to five, but that's really hard to do anymore and you know, I don't think that that's something we want to go back to, but how do you how do you sort of use flexibility more artfully so that you do have a a much firmer protection if you will? Um, of that sort of sacred time at home. Uh, You know, and I know people like to talk about, they don't like to talk about work-life balance. They talk about work-life integration, work-life fit, work-life flow. I mean, whatever word you want to use. And and it's true, there is sort of more integration than there has been. But as long as you integrate, but recognize that you need to create much brighter lines to protect that time at home and with family and, and for yourself. And that it isn't just all work all the time. And I did
1: this experiment um, from speaking into all these women on this podcast. I have started to pull together threads of what what it takes um, to kill it, right? And I, mm-hmm. I, I came up with a seven step action plan to killing it. And nice. the very first step is to find your joy, because I found over and over again the women who really started to completely kill it in their careers had tapped into what really brought them joy and happiness, and um, what they you know were really passionate about, and that was when. And they left a track that they had been set on by somebody else or mm-hmm. society. And that was when their career really um, took off. Mm -hmm. So but but so many of us are completely disconnected from our inner wants and needs and even our own thinking that we deserve any joy or happiness. And, you know, we're just so disconnected, especially women who are so accustomed to um, catering to everyone else's needs except their own. Right.
0: It's true. Well, the ideal mother. Right. That's Mm -hmm. such a powerful, uh, such a powerful icon. And boy, the ideal mother would never go to a yoga class. Mm -hmm. You know, ideal Mm -hmm. mother doesn't take care of herself. She just powers through if she's sick. And, you know, that's where we need to start pushing back against some of those, like you're saying, I love that, that, you know, paths that other people set you on. That's an icon that other people have created that we feel like we have to live up to, but is really robbing us of our ability to live our own lives. And, you know, just like what you're saying, you know, in the book, I look a lot at why it's so difficult for women to play or why it's so difficult for women to have leisure time. And it's really because we've never had a history or culture of it. You know, again, the good woman is always busy and bustling around and, you know, rearranging the junk drawer, you know, rather than like sitting down and reading a book. And there was this study that just really blew my mind that was done. And it asked women all around the globe about taking time for themselves or leisure or me time or whatever you want to call it. And it, it blew my mind. It didn't matter your age or your race or your ethnicity, your religion or whatever. Almost to a one, women said they didn't feel like they deserved that kind of time They had to earn it. And the only way to earn it was to finish your to-do list, which, you know, most people's to-do list never ends. There's always more stuff to do. There's always more stuff of life out there. You'll never be done. You know, the day you die, your inbox is going to be full and there's going to be stuff on the to-do list. So I used to call it living the if-then mentality. Like, if I finish all this, then I can relax. And a lot of people get into that, and particularly women, they kind of get into that false way of thinking. And that's That's a lot of what I talk about, too. It's like you have to disrupt that. And how do you create time now? Because how will you ever find your joy unless you create that time to pause and really get in touch with yourself and really go on that walk and let your mind wander? You know, make that connection. Let your brain kind of do what the brain does best, which is sort of make really interesting new connections. And, you know, honestly, I was very guilty of that. I was so busy and I was always going. I never had time to think. And what I found like for, you know, even for vacations, you talk to women, they don't even know what they want to do on vacation. They wouldn't know what they wanted to do if they had time off because they're so busy. They never take the time to think about or kind of even get clear on like, wow, this is what I really need. And so that's sort of the first thing that I would say to kill it, you to find your joy. The first thing you've got to do is pause. Mm-hmm. You've got to just take that breath so that you can begin to, to figure out, well, what is it?
1: Yeah, I forced myself to do it for a whole the month of December. I I've been trying to integrate it more, but the month of December was very systematic. And I said every single day I'm going to have joy. And nice, um, good for you. The crazy thing was I did better at work. I did better in my family life. I took some moments to pause. I, sometimes I just enjoyed. I, I I actually was just more present and focused on the joy that was occurring. It didn't actually take me any more time. It was just about being present. Mm-hmm. Other times I actually took the time out and. Some of my best ideas came to me when I decided, oh, I'll take a nice bath and actually relax for a minute here. Then I get some great inspiration. You know, it's like when your brain is in that kind of low state, that's when you get the good ideas, like you said. Um, I actually was more successful.
0: I so, love that. It's so true. You know, the, there's a, a fantastic uh, neuroscientist. They wrote this book called Eureka. And they've mapped how we get our good ideas. They've actually through PET scans and through fMRIs. And if you really want to be creative, if you really want to do your best work, if you want to have that flash of insight, honest to God, you need to do exactly what you did. Take a bath. Take a shower. Go for a walk. Because it's really fascinating. You know, they're, they've actually mapped it. Your brain is wired to get its best ideas in that moment of diffuse state. You know, when you're not thinking about anything in particular, when you're relaxed, you know, when you're kind of calm, uh, you're wired to get your best ideas then. I always get my best ideas at bedtime. That's why I actually keep a notebook
1: on my bedside table because it's yeah. always right when I'm falling asleep that I, I
0: get a good idea. Well, that's brilliant. And see, you've created a system to take advantage of that. That's brilliant. But
1: I want to give back one, um, the point that you made about all women around the whole world feeling like they don't deserve time for themselves. Yeah. And, and where, we know... That's where
0: guilt comes from. We you know a
1: lot of the a lot of men are also um, in this trap of, you know, I'll, I'll be able to relax once I get this thing done, right? A lot of men are in that trap, too. However, I would love to see a study like that done to see the male counterpart, because kind of like this stereotype that you're picturing of the bustling woman, the, the, the counterpoint of that would be like the man sitting in the lazy boy with his newspaper, right? Right, right. <laughs> so... <yeah. laughs> The fact that they feel that they deserve it and we feel that we don't deserve it, I mean, that is just a straight up valuing of, you know, men feeling more valued than women feel. I mean, it's just a straight up gender inequality point. I mean, the fact we need to feel that we deserve these things. And I, I've been obsessed with that with this show, too, because you need to feel that you deserve things in order to feel like you deserve that promotion or that raise or um, whatever opportunity you could be taking to bring your career to the next level. You have to, in your heart, Believe that you deserve it.
0: Well, it's it, it's really interesting, you know, because I was really wrestling with this when I was when I was working on the book. Because again, I sort of had that view. It's like, well, I'm always running around and I'm so busy, and that's so virtuous, you know. I'm virtuously busy, and my husband's just a lazy bum. And I remember talking to somebody, and um, she was complaining about her husband, and she's like, oh, and he's out on the front porch and he's playing the guitar, you know, and I'm in here dusting, and dusting, and she was so angry. And I was talking to uh, this woman named Jessica DeGroot, who runs Third Path Institute, and they're all about trying to help couples come up with systems so that, you know, to make things work better at work and at home. And I mentioned that to to Jessica because I totally related to her. It's like, yeah, that slacker playing the guitar, what a jerk. And Jessica just paused and she said, well, you know, why did he have to come in and dust? Why was that the right answer? You know, why couldn't she have gone out and sat with him or found another instrument or, you know, done something that also brought her joy and relaxation? And it was one of those times where it just kind of felt clonged on the head. It's like, yeah, why are we always angry with the guys for not, like, coming in and doing more busy work? Why don't we take you know, why don't we learn more from how the guys are? Why don't we kind of feel more entitled to play the guitar or, you know, watch your daughter play, blow bubbles rather than scrub the floor, you know? And I think that that's, that's part of it is that we need to give ourselves permission to think differently.
1: Well, Bridget, I could talk to you all day about these issues for sure. Um, And I didn't even get to get into your fascinating career, but our time (laughs) is short. Um, uh, I do want to ask the one question that I ask all my guests, which is, what is one thing that you know now that you wish you would have known when you started your career?
0: Oh boy, there is such a long list. I, I wish that I had known that um, that there is more help out there if you need it that you can that you can um, ask and and reach out to mentors. Uh, I never did. I always thought that that was sort of like you know, sort of unseemly or, you know, or grasping or that ambition was a bad thing. And I guess I wish that I had known, you know, that to kind of follow your heart and to be lighthearted and and open and curious, that that's sort of the path to joy um, rather than, you know, uh, kind of feeling like you have to slog and live up to other people's expectations. And I, I guess I'd wish I'd I, I had been truer to myself from the start.
1: At least we're all figuring it out now, and hopefully we can figure it out for the younger generation. That's Um, certainly
0: the hope. That's why I'm doing what I'm doing. You know, me too.
1: Um, And trying to save, salvage was, you know, the rest of my um, time here on this planet. Right. Um, (laughs) Well, Bridget, thank you so much. This has been so fascinating. For people to check out the um, the toolkit and what you do, they should go to um, newamerica.org and. There's a section on Better Life Lab. Is that correct?
0: That's right. Yeah. And, and then we also have a, we have a biweekly newsletter. That's the best of the work that we do. And then also really great curated content from around the web, just a variety of you know, talks and essays and articles and you know, data visualization to really kind of build the movement, keep the conversation going on how to make real change for men and women uh, you know, at work, love, and play.
1: I love it. Thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Oh, thanks so much for having
1: me. It was so fun to talk to you. If you enjoyed this show, please subscribe to our podcast, rate and review us on iTunes, and most importantly, tell a friend about us. Thanks for joining us.